If you have your Bible, I'm going to ask that you would turn to uh, the book of Hebrews. Hebrew, sorry, Hebrews. No, not Hebrews. Galatians. It's in the right half of the book. Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 24. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, verse 24. We're going to read all the way to verse 10 of chapter 6. Galatians 5, 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. But the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But to the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith, as far God's word. And as we near the end of the letter of Galatians, we've been going through this for a number of months, I wonder, I wonder if you noticed how often the idea of desires or wants or passions comes up. That idea comes up quite a bit. It's a big deal to Paul in this particular letter. The heart's desires and the heart's goals and passions. Now, this is key to understanding why Paul skewers the false teachers in suggesting that the way to be more holy, more pleasing to God is by adding more rules, more restrictions, more standards of behavior in order to be spiritual people. Those do nothing, Paul says. They do nothing to the heart. And the heart is the problem. Last week, we took a look at the fruit of the Spirit, the results of being saved by trusting in the Lord Jesus. What God produces in a man or a woman that has been saved by the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are noticeably outward, those fruits, but they're... Primarily, aren't they descriptions of a person's heart attitude and the, the inner workings? They talk about a transformed heart in a way that activities could simply just not do. But the gospel of the Lord Jesus can do that. Now, focusing on religious activities and indeed adding more of them doesn't solve the problem of a wicked heart that loves to glorify anything other than God. Because now the person is, is perhaps living a little more outward, outwardly spiritual. But in reality, they're acting like their own savior. And treating their own actions as the things that would save them. 
They're living by the flesh. The false teachers are saying, look, you're living by the flesh. You're going into all these sins. You're not as holy. We got to find different standards so that we can, we can be more spiritual. And they add more standards and they do them. And Paul says, there you are. You're also living by the flesh. You've replaced one kind of idolatry, being your own Lord, with another, being your own Savior. And so we don't simply need to help restraining our wicked hearts, but we need them to be crucified. So dear friends, one of the sweetest gifts of the gospel is one that is perhaps the most offensive. The sweetest and most offensive part of the gospel, you might say, is that you need a new heart. Your old one is worthy of damnation and would only produce damnable works. But Christ himself was damned to reconcile you to God. And he's given you a new heart by which to enjoy that reconciliation with God that he bought for you with his blood. That takes us to our first point, and this is it. The Spirit of God kills those who Christ purchased with his blood. Pretty gruesome. The Spirit of God kills those who Christ purchased with his blood. And we can see this in the first verse of uh, our attention here, verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So Paul here reminds us of what needed to happen in order for us to be saved. Crucifixion. Death. Not trying harder with our flesh, not by our own effort or even God's help to have works that save ourselves, to reconcile ourselves to God. No, that would not do. Not even God's help would do. Death is what is required. We don't just need behavior improvement of the old man, the old woman. The sentence for our sin is not just work it off. The sentence was death and damnation in hell. The Bible gives us a number of reasons for why this is, but we can look at two today. First, the wages of sin, God says, is death. The wages of sin is death. You can't unsin a sin. And second, God summarizes his law as loving him with all your soul and strength and mind, but also your heart. And the problem is that we sin because we are sinful. It's not the actions of sin that make our heart sinful. It is sin that springs up from a sinful heart. The problem is our guilt before God. Also, though, it is our hearts that don't love him. And therefore produce desires and wants which are wicked. And yet even in that state, the Lord loved us and came not just to redeem guilty people who loved him, but he came to redeem people who were at heart not good people. He came to redeem people who were his enemies, which the Lord considered enemies, but also which considered God, his, uh, God their enemy. And this is the great love for God in Christ for us, that while we were not just acting like enemies, but while our hearts hated him and considered him an enemy, 
That is when the Lord Jesus died for our sins. And our sin and corrupt hearts mean that we needed God the Son to come to earth to redeem us, not simply by setting an example, not just by reforming those hearts and just training those wicked hearts to to just do better. No, we needed him to live in our place with a pure heart and then die in our place for the punishment of us having wicked hearts and then being raised from the dead. The Bible says that faith unites you to Jesus. Faith makes you part of him to count as part of his body. Faith unites you to Jesus, which means that what he did then counts for you. What that means is that when Jesus died on the cross, that was your official death date. Legally, in God's sight, that is when you died. That is when your punishment for your sin was taken. That was the last day of your life. And then it is applied to us. That truth that Jesus accomplished is applied by the Holy Spirit. The moment that you trust in Jesus, you are considered dead, crucified, officially dead. That means when you trust in him, his death is now applied to you. Your sins are forgiven, but not only that, he died to sin, says the Bible, which means he took your sinful self and he died with it. And that is why Paul can say, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The old man or the old woman has died. And so too, says Paul here, your old passions and desires died. The old heart is dead. The Holy Spirit then is, is happy to apply these things that Christ accomplished. And so he kills those who Christ purchased with his blood. The person who you once were, you no longer are, if you are in Christ. The sinful desires that characterized you are no longer your desires. That is true if you are living in the flesh by both sinful ways, by being your own Lord or perhaps trying to be your own Savior. That died when Christ died. And that death was applied to you the moment you believed. If you've repented and trusted in Jesus, those things are who you used to be. It's not who you now are. Paul says essentially the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. This is the result of the death of Christ. If you are united to him by trusting in him, 
then his death counts as yours. And he put your old self, the old enemy self, to death. And those things that once characterized your old self, from homosexuality, to adultery, to greed, to anger, to being a swindler or divisiveness or self-righteousness or trusting your own deeds. Those things that once characterized your old self, these were put to death when Christ died. This was accomplished by Christ's death and is applied by the Holy Spirit the moment he gives you faith. Dear friend, Do you trust in the Lord Jesus? Have you abandoned hope of trying to earn your own place in the kingdom of God? Have you abandoned hope that God simply just won't punish sin? Have you abandoned the life of an enemy of God and being self-lord? And have you instead trusted in the life of Christ to count as your righteousness and in the death of Christ to count as your punishment? If this is true, then you have died. The old you is no more. She was crucified with Christ. And the world will tell you, though, that she is still alive. The world and the evil one will make every attempt to tell you that you are still the person who is a liar, a thief, an adulterer, a homosexual, a drunk, or a lazy man, or just an arguer. And Paul here declares that that person was sentenced to be crucified and was crucified with Christ. And here stands a new man, a new woman. The old is not here any longer. The crucifixion of the old self, the flesh and the desires that belong to it, it was accomplished by Christ on the cross. It is applied by the Holy Spirit when you believe. And then it is continually for the rest of the believer's life The Spirit of God will work in us to make us consider ourselves dead to sin. Because we are. Though we may not feel like it very often. Now, why is it? Why is it that we often don't feel like we are dead? Why is it we still feel these old desires? The desires of the the old man or the old woman, the old old heart. Why is it? Well, I think the imagery of a a branch being cut off of a tree can help to illustrate this. The death blow has been dealt. That branch is dead. It is a dead branch. It's been cut off. And though there is still some life in it, it still influences you and you're, you're still tempted to follow your old identity and its old desires. It wages war against the new man to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And so Paul will say, Don't water that branch. Don't feed it. Don't fertilize it. Let it die. And that is what considering yourself dead to sin is. And the technical term for it is mortification. Mortification. Knowing and loving that the old me is dead. And continually treating him that way. That was the old me, but I am in Christ. He died not just for my sin, but he died with my sin. And I believe that Jesus did die for and with my sin. So dear Christian, I want 
you to see, and Paul wants you to see, that this is a better approach to bare-knuckle fighting against your sinful desires and thinking that you are always going to have to say no to your heart's desires. No, dear Christian, we have to remember the gospel of the Lord Jesus. His death was yours. Your old self was condemned to hell for its actions, but it's also its desires and its actions were crucified. And so his life replaces yours and saving you and forgiving you. He now gives you his resurrection with a new self, a new identity as God's dearly beloved and holy child with a heart that has new desires. And isn't it lovely that now that you have new desires, these don't have to be bottled up or restricted, but can be fanned into flame and pursued with all the strength that God gives us. This is the gift of the gospel, this kind of freedom to pursue and not restrain at all the new desires that God has given with this new heart because he's killed the old one. Our second point is this, the spirit of God gives life to those who Christ purchased with his blood. Good thing he didn't just crucify us. He was raised from the dead and we too with him. Galatians 5.25, if we live, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And so here, Paul says that since we do live by the Spirit, since he has given us faith in Christ and eternal life, since he has made us who were dead in sin, he's made us now alive in Christ, we should also keep in step with the Spirit. What is he saying? Act like an alive person. We're to follow and be led by the Holy Spirit who gave us forgiveness and he will also then be our guide. Earlier, Paul spoke of how foolish it is to begin by the Spirit and then finish with the flesh. He's saying, you were saved by thinking you needed to be crucified and needed the new life of Christ in you by the Spirit. And now you're going to continue by thinking, now I need to like get that, man, that old man out of the grave and, and get him to do good things. Foolish. Now, much has been said foolishly about what it means to be led by the Spirit. I'm sure you've heard every manner of false teaching about what does it mean to be led by the Spirit. Most of it is borrowed from pagan religions, and then it's just called Christianity. The Spirit does not lead us by telling us what job to pick or what hat to wear or what clothes to eat. Your thoughts in your head are not... God talking to you. No, says Paul, the spirit makes you a free man or woman. Makes you an heir. An heir of God. An heir of the God of the universe. You are free to choose those things. Asking or requiring that the spirit give you or other people messages or pictures in some way telling you which choices to make, that's not spirituality. That's bondage. It's actually more of the flesh. It's not embracing fully the gift of the gospel. It leads to more legalism and more rules and more God requires or expects. And we need to be very careful here. Some people treat the fruit of the spirit as tests to see if you're following God's leading in your life. For example, I'm interviewing for a job. And while I am making that choice, I'm feeling very peaceful. And I have to be loving my, pe- my neighbors quite a bit. So God must be telling me to pick this job. No. These fruits are his leading. 
This transformed heart is his leading. It's not just the evidence of his leading. They are what he leads you to do. And more than that, they are what he leads you to want to do. Because what he does is more intimate than that. He gives us a new heart with the same core affections that God has. Those Christ-like desires, of course, shape how we make choices without requiring us to make a certain choice as opposed to other godly options. A new heart with desires that you are not having to say no to. Not fighting desires, but saying yes to desires. And that is really freedom. Now, the word of God identifies which are the desires of the old flesh, the old self, and which are the desires of the new life of Christ living in us. And we've already seen what these are, the fruit of the Spirit. And so here, Paul is going to apply these fruit of the Spirit to the heart of a believer, particularly to the Galatians, in the relationships within their church. We're going to see, what does this actually look like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of those things. What does this actually now look like? And we're going to see him apply very, very practically. This is the Spirit's leading. So that takes us to our third point. The Spirit of God transforms how we view the sins of people in our church. Let's uh, start at verse 26 of chapter 5. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If any, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Thus far God's word. And the Galatian church had strayed so far from the gospel that they didn't know how to deal with sin in the church. In the first case, they're correcting each other over things that that are not even sinful. They had gone treasure hunting in the Old Testament to make up rules to prove their worth. They were judging uh, people based on standards that were not even God's standards. They were considering somebody a weak Christian or less spiritual for not measuring up to the the, the new standards that they made up. And that's a very common problem in the church. Not judging people by the law of God, not by the fruit of the spirit, but, but but what we invent as things that are good and things that good Christians should do or good Christians should think. How to vote or what to wear or how to school children. Or how much money to spend, and we can go on. And that's the first way that the Galatians had lost the gospel, and therefore the ability to view sin in the church from the vantage point of the gospel. Paul tells us what is the leading, though, of the Spirit. What the Spirit always leads us to do. Notice his words, you who are spiritual. This is what the Spirit of God works in those who have been forgiven and who have been given new life. They are desirous of restoration. They're not looking to invent new sins and judge people by them. But when they do see a brother in Christ fall into sin, their heart breaks and want nothing more than this brother to be restored. 
The fruit of gentleness does not prevent them from calling a brother or sister to repent, but it does transform the way they do it. In fact, the Galatian lack of gentleness actually prevented them from seeing and calling fallen sinners to repentance because they didn't consider many sins as actually sinful. Discord and jealousy and division were seen as marks of maturity. Dear Christian, these last two years have seen much of evangelicalism left and right adopt the same blind attitude to real sin. They've considered things that the Bible says is sinful as marks of Christian maturity, division, anger, jealousy, adding new rules by which to judge a Christian. And our little church is not immune to that. And we need to hear this as well. A gentle spirit does not prevent a church family from restoring a member who has fallen into sin, but it it motivates them to do it in light of the gospel. And the love that's worked in the heart of the gospel sees the sin of a brother and sees it as a brother caught in a trap or who has been caught in a fast-flowing river or who has been crushed by a weight. Maybe a boulder falls on them off of a landslide and they're trapped underneath it. And the heart deeply desires for that brother or sister to be rescued. But those helping to restore a fallen church member must beware, says Paul. You must beware. Why? Because that old self will want to take advantage of the situation. To use it to devour, to destroy, or to lift yourself up. But that old man, Paul says, needs to be put to death. What is the risk? What is the risk when we see somebody who has fallen into sin? What is the risk for you in dealing with that? Well, the risks are many, but every single one of them is a risk of the flesh. The old self taking advantage to become Lord or Savior. The risk of self-righteousness. That comes from uh, comparing your own performance with that of the fallen church member. Wow, I am better than that person. (laughs) I am much more worthy of God's love. Now, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but we all know that God is much happier to have me than that person. In fact, the reason that person fell is because he is not as good as me. I could not fall, at least not that badly. Or seeing the kinds of sin that people fall into, and and usually we're talking about the kind of outward and invisible and obvious sins. And you think in light of that, your sins of lust or pride or anger or impatience really don't count as sin and really shouldn't be repented of or put to death. You know, it's kind of like the monster that killed that guy is not nearly as big as the monster on my shoulder. I don't need to put my monster to death. I can just keep feeding him. And we're not to take advantage of or add to or use the burdens of others, the sins of others to crush them or to lift yourself up. We are to bear one another's burdens. For that's the spirit of Christ that flows in us. It is our new life. Now be sure that Christ hates the sin of his dear people. 
He did before he came to earth and he does now. He hates the sin in his dear people, but his love moved him to carry our sin for us on the cross, to bear our burden on the cross for us, to be damned for it, to die for it. Now, you and I can't bear the wrath of God for the sins of other people. But the same heart of Christ draws us to want to help them and remove that burden because we too have a burden and we too see our own sin and temptations and we see these as burdens and we love others as we love ourselves, which is the law of Christ, Paul says here. And so it is our desire to help restore I wonder if you noticed Paul's solution to the danger of helping somebody who's in sin. Did you notice it? If anyone thinks he is something, you know, if this happens, if anybody's tempted in this way, here's what you should do. And he provides a remedy. And that remedy, a medicine, a vaccine, if you will, for approaching a fallen or fallen brothers and sisters in Christ is to realize that you are an absolute fool to compare yourself to a fallen church member. Because that will not do when you are standing before God's throne. Your sin will not be compared to others. It will be compared to Christ. You still feel proud? Still feel really good that you've done a good job? You compare yourself to Christ, your own righteousness to Christ? Still feel good? Still feel like you're something? You will carry your own load, says Paul. You will stand before Christ to answer for your sins. There you will not be able to blame anybody else for your sin. You will not be able to compare your sin to anyone else. You will have only one plea. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Dear Lord Jesus, died for my record. Do not count it against me. And dear Christian, that plea will do. When Christ was raised from the dead, that was God promising you that that plea will do. You have one plea. And it is not to compare or blame, but that you are guilty and that Christ died for your sins just like he died for the sins of your brothers and sisters. So sowing to the spirit and not to the flesh, so don't keep watering that cut off branch, the old dead man. In that situation, it involves considering your own sin and that you do have a perfect plea and it is Christ's righteousness and not your own. That is the leading of the spirit, a new heart, a new life which leads you to see the sins of other Christians differently. Next point. Next example of how the the fruit of the Spirit works itself out in a church. Fourth point. The Spirit of God transforms how we view the ministry of the Word of God. Let's pick it up in verse 6 and we'll read to verse 8. Let the one who's taught the Word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is Not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but to the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We'll end there. 
This one kind of seems to come out of nowhere, doesn't it? <laughs> so let's put it into its context and so we can understand. Where in the world? Seems like an odd place to talk about, about generosity, doesn't it, and, and giving. So here's the context, and you remember this if you were, were following along with the book of Galatians. The Galatians at one point were, or, or now were so thrilled with their own ideas and the ideas of false teachers. They were eager to take teaching that tickled their ears, whatever was popular, picking and choosing teachers by their own whims. So essentially, a a teacher had to sort of earn their attention, had to grab their attention, had to compete for their attention, whatever was popular, picking and choosing by their own whims. But those teachers did not fear God. Those teachers did not love God, and they certainly did not love the Galatians. And now into that comes Paul. Paul bringing a correction from the word of God. He's bringing rich food. He's bringing pure living water. He's bringing God's own word. He's taking the gospel of Christ, and he's showing how the Galatians were in danger of departing from life. He's warning them, wanting to restore them. Now, earlier the church... These churches had loved the ministry of the gospel. They would have plucked out their eyes, Paul says, if they could have in order to give them to Paul. They valued nothing more than the word of God. But now they are too spiritual for that. Too holy. Just a pure word of God, that is beneath them. I mean, they've got the internet and they've got conspiracy theories and and other men who will tell them the real ways to people who really know God show that they really love him. They've got listening prayer, and they've got gurus who will tell them how to know what God wants. Well, of course, some of those things are modern inventions. This is the idea, though. And so they now treat Paul, who's just bringing the word of God simply, as 4 verse 16, if you go back to chapter 4, they treat him as somebody bringing the word of God, they treat as an enemy. Now, the Galatian churches would have likely had elders and pastors. Same thing, by the way, in the Bible, an elder and a pastor. Men who have been set up through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Not to give new teaching. Not to impress the church. Not to take the gospel which, or but, sorry, but to take the gospel which Christ gave to the apostles and to faithfully and ordinarily serve it to their own little churches. To act not like chefs, but waiters. To continually serve these people with the gospel. An established church was supposed to set aside at least one elder to support him financially so that he could quit his real job and give all of his attention to the ministry of the word. Making sure that the church has the word of God taught and applied to them. And based on what Paul said about their earlier days, they would have loved the gospel so much that they felt happy and were felt, felt enriched by it. But now, because they've moved away from the gospel and into things that lead them to have more confidence in themselves and not in Christ, they now cared so little for the gospel that they were willing to let these men starve who were set aside to serve them with the gospel. They were so spiritual 
that the ordinary teaching of the word of God was seen as a nuisance, especially if it called them to fix their eyes on Christ and away from themselves. So, sowing to the Spirit here, it means honoring the gospel and making sure that your church has lots and lots and lots and lots of it. Sowing to the flesh would be to invest yourself in the ministry of men who do not have to give you the full word of God and be more interested in those who at best, at best, only teach the portions of the word of God that you're interested in. And at worst, things that go beyond that things that could be known by the Bible alone. New ways to read the Bible and unlock it. The real things that world leaders and billionaires are doing and how to stop it. Brothers and sisters, that is sowing to the flesh. But delighting in the ordinary ministry of a local church where the whole counsel of God's word and nothing else is faithfully taught, that will help mortify the old flesh and sow to the spirit. And so Paul says, God is not mocked. You will sow what you will reap. He's not saying you're going to get, you're going to pay money and get money. This is not what he's saying at all. He's saying, feed the new desires. Pursue the new desires of the new heart, and you will see those desires get stronger. But if you keep watering that cut-off branch of the old self, don't be surprised if it keeps growing like a vine and strangles you. The religious extra rules and trusting in their goodness looked like holiness and spirituality, but it was in fact sowing to the flesh. It was not eating and drinking deeply of the gospel, but of hell. So, brothers and sisters, consider yourself dead to the two types of sin, the two types of the flesh that Paul has identified here, being your own Lord and being your own Savior. Preach the cross to yourself. It's not simply restraining desires and try to reform the old man. It is to say, I died with Christ. My own flesh could not accomplish salvation. Christ did it for me, and I now live in him. And not be surprised when the old me prefers teachers to suit me or tickle my ears or only talk about the things I'm interested in. That's the old me, and I'm not surprised by it. But the new me wants a preacher who will faithfully give me the gospel in the whole Bible and nothing less and nothing else. Just personally, one of the greatest gifts that you can give to a church, to a pastor, is to love the word. And I am also very, very grateful for the ministries of of Caleb and Jordan in faithfully preaching the gospel and nothing else. Third, or fifth, third, fifth. Fifth point, the spirit of God transforms how we view the needs of others. Lastly, we have a lovely summary, you could say, of what the fruit of the Spirit looks like in a church very practically. Let's read 9 and 10. And let, us do not, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do, do, good, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
thus far God's word. Do good to everyone, especially the church. Now, isn't this the heart of Christ? He has a special love for the church, his family, his bride, his body. It is a covenant love. Now, love that doesn't mean, uh, it's, it's a love that, that he doesn't have for the rest of the world. That doesn't mean he shows no love to the world. He reminds us that he causes rain to fall on the crops of those who love him and on the crops of those who hate him. Every good thing that they have ever enjoyed comes from him. But we should not be ashamed or surprised to hear that the household of God is our first priority. And that's by the design of God. It makes sense to call yourself uh, to spiritual and holy because you are interested in helping people care for their children. But are uh, sorry, (laughs) it makes no sense if you consider it a holy or spiritual action to care for the children of others when you yourself are unwilling to care for your own children or your own family. And so this makes sense with the church. If you consider that the gospel has made us all the household of God. All who have faith in Christ sit at the family table and in a chair that only Christ deserves to sit at. Inscribed in the back of every chair is reserved for Christ. He has paid for it. And we sit in it. All of us there because Christ hung in our place at the cross. All of us receive this gift simply by faith. That's why here he calls it the household of faith. We see the needs now of those whom God has given to us as if they were our own needs. Because that is the heart of Christ. And that is the new life that now flows in us. How did he consider our needs? He considered them as if they were his own. So that is the leading of the Holy Spirit. To consider the needs of others as if they were your own. It's not just a test of the leading of the Spirit. Am I being led by the Spirit? And No, no, no. This is the leading of the Spirit. It's not just a gauge This is what the Spirit of God leads us to do. A heart that loves what God loves. Why do you think Paul speaks of endurance here? Because in some ways, this is a more restful spiritual life than the false teachers were promoting, right? It's it's a more restful one. You're not earning your salvation. You can rest in what Christ has accomplished. I'm not trying to earn my way to God, and I'm not wondering, have I done enough so that if I die, I'll wake up in heaven? No, I am resting in the finished work of Christ. When Christ cried out, it is finished. I believe it's true. All that was required to save me was done by Christ. And so it's more restful compared to what the False teachers were adding these new ways to impress God and to achieve salvation. And so it is more restful to trust in Christ. But in other ways, it requires more endurance and more effort. See, picking the right hat or food or prayer technique is a lot easier than spending time with a broken sister or brother who's crushed by their sin and despairing of the love of God. And then exhorting them to trust that Christ has paid for even this sin. And God's love is not separated from you, not even by this sin. Getting circumcised is not pleasant, but it requires less endurance than pushing a wheelchair 
or visiting your mom or husband to lift spoonfuls of food into her mouth or his mouth. Blogging or reading a blog about the secret alliance between this billionaire and that politician and how Christians need to wake up and see what's blinding them before it's too late. That is a lot easier than working a job faithfully and managing your money so that you can afford to be generous with the needs of your church family. But though it will take more energy, the Lord will supply it. And this is the way he works in his people who will be with him in paradise. He works these things in them, not at all to earn it, but as a way to delight in him on their way to it. He will supply the energy. And more than that, he will supply the will, the heart, the desire to do these things so that you're not doing them against your heart's desire, but pursuing your new heart's desire. These things are pleasing to the Lord, not to earn salvation, but to live the life that Christ died to give you as a free heir who is loved by and loves God. So dear church, Paul's warning here, his encouragement is do not water the old man, that old branch. The cross dealt the death blow and do not give him any life or he'll strangle you. Don't do it by treasuring thoughts and actions, which you ought to act as though these things are enemies. Put to death the old self. Because he has already been crucified with Christ. You are a new creation by the work of Christ alone through faith in him that is given by the Spirit. So if we live by the Spirit, if we are saved by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are humbled to hear that our old self, our old heart, did not just need to be improved or given direction or restrained even, but needed to be killed and deserved to be killed. And rather, Lord, than having us face our own death sentence and eternal punishment in hell, that you sent your son to obey in our place and also then to die in our place And thank you for uniting us to him so that his death counts as ours, his crucifixion counts as ours, his execution and his punishment from you counts as ours. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we live as if we haven't died in Christ and that we live as the old person, either being our own Lord or picking other lords or trying to be our own savior. Lord, I pray that we would be a church who delights in being new creations and who reminds each other of that. That we would obey you not to be saved and not against our heart's desires, but by pursuing those new desires which your spirit works in us, which is the spirit of Christ. I pray that you would do that merciful work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.